wonderful. So glad to see you. If you were here last week, you know we had Tailgate Sunday, which included an incredible lunch, and so I want to commend those who prepared that lunch because it was a wonderful time, and everything went smooth, and the best part about it, I didn't hear a complaint, and so I appreciate that from all of you who were thinking about complaining but chose not to. So. There's a story told about the great American writer, Ernest Hemingway, that's probably more legend than truth. But the story is, is that he went to lunch with uh, close friends, and uh, he made a wager. He said, I bet you $10, each of you $10, that I can write an entire story in just six words. Well, they thought, there's a nobody, not even the great Ernest Hemingway, who can write an entire story in just six words. And so they paid up, they formed the... Uh, uh, kind of the, the pool there, and he pulled a napkin out, took a pen, and he scribbled down six words. He passes around the napkin, collects his winnings, and this is his six-word sto uh, six story. For sale, baby shoes never worn. And they thought, he sure did win that. That's an incredible story, very poignant, because it makes you ask, what? I mean, you know, what happened in this situation? This is a form of fiction that writers called flash fiction. It's whenever you take a fictional work of, uh, you know, incredible brevity that still offers character and plot development. So let me ask a question this morning. Can you create a flash nonfiction story of your life, describing your life in exactly six words? A few years ago, a book was published that became a New York Times bestseller called Not Quite What I Was Planning. You'll notice there's six words in the title, not quite what I was planning. And this book contains a thousand or about a thousand of these six word memoirs. And they're by writers famous and obscure. Some of them are just, you know, very funny. Some of them are ironic. Some of them are inspiring. Some of them are heartbreaking. And so I'm going to share with you some of the examples. The first one is this, one tooth, one cavity, life's cruel. Oh, well, that's a pretty good story, right? <laughs> a nine-year-old boy had thyroid cancer, wrote, Cursed with cancer, blessed with friends. It's a good summary there. Another, not a good Christian, but trying. Somebody else writes, Found true love, married someone else. <laughs> you think, what happened there? <laughs> Another one says, The psychic said I'd be richer. And so things don't always turn out like we planned. Well, I think one lesson from this book is that we all have a story to tell. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be in a series that I'm calling This Is My Story. And we're going to look at what happens when God gets hold of somebody's life. And all throughout the scriptures, there are people who have encounters with Jesus uh, that it really impacts their lives in dramatic ways. And so we're going to pay special attention about how their life is impacted, but also with regards to us, what does this mean for us? We're going to look at people from the New Testament who meet with Jesus. We'll also look at folks from the Old Testament who have direct encounters with God. And one of my hopes is this, is that everyone will think seriously about your own story of what happened when God got hold of your life. Earlier this year, I asked all of our deacons to write out their testimony so I could know their story of how God came into their life. Some of these stories were, you know, several pages long. Some were just a couple of paragraphs. 
I actually told them that I wrote my testimony in less than 100 words. That way it's not intimidating. And I think anybody can do this. In fact, I think it's a great challenge for you. For you to think about how, the impact God's made in your life. What, how God saved you and what that story might be like. Now, we need the scriptures to share the gospel. But sometimes just telling what great things God has done for you and how he had mercy on you is all Jesus asks for you to do. And so the story of a personal encounter that we're going to look at today could be summed up in a six-word memoir. Jesus calmed the storm inside me. The end of Mark 4, Jesus and his disciples encounter a storm. They are on the western banks, of, likely on the western banks of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Then it says in Mark 4, verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much so that the boat was already filling up. Well, most of you will recognize this story as the one where Jesus calms the sea. And you'll remember that during this moment, Jesus is asleep at the stern of the boat. And they start realizing, where's Jesus? Well, he's the only one who could do anything. They were skilled sailors, but they didn't know how to calm a storm. So they go to him and they say, are you, are you not concerned we're going to die? They wake him up. He goes and speaks to the storm, peace, be still. And the waves and the winds die down. And all of a sudden, those disciples who are with him are asking the question, who is he? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Well, the very next passage of Scripture is where we're going to focus that shows us how Jesus calms the storm inside me. If Mark's account of the gospel is in fact chronological um, in nature, then immediately after Jesus and his disciples cross the sea, having calmed the storm, they arrive safely uh, on the far side of the sea and uh, they realize that it doesn't matter if you're at sea or if you're on land. There's still the possibility of storms in life. There can be literal storms and there can be figurative storms that rage inside of us. So you'll remember that Mark 4.35 says that Jesus says, let us go over to the other side. Well, it may not sound like it to you, but Jesus is dropping a real bomb of a statement among his contemporaries when he says this. Because his comment is something akin to, let's go to the other side of the tracks. It's not the description of just a geographical place. It's a um, technical statement of what type of place this is and what kind of people are there. See, the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Lake Tiberias or Lake Gennesaret, the same place, just known by different names, is the region where the Decapolis is. The Decapolis is the, the ten cities. And this is basically enemy territory for the Jewish people. And on the other side, here in the Decapolis, they were generally known as pagans. They were actually understood to be the descendants of the seven nations of Canaan. If you'll think back, you'll remember that when Joshua was bringing the people into the promised land, he said that he would drive out the nations of Canaan. So that meant he was going to drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. There's seven of them. The seven nations of Canaan. 
And the Jew, Jewish people traditionally believe they all settled, those people groups settled on the other side. They settled there in that region that might be known as the Decapolis. The land was, um, was filled with pagan temples. They worshiped through uh, even human sacrifice, I think. Um, it was known, it, it was basically the antithesis to Israel. Everything that Israel honored, they dishonored. They were even known to herd pigs over there. And of course, pigs were about the, the, the most unclean animal known to the Jews. Now, not because of scripture, but because when they were persecuted, many of those that were persecuting the Jews used the pigs as a part of that. And so Jews generally thought of the other side as where Satan would dwell. Kind of a dark, evil, oppressive, and demonic place. The Decapolis was also the center of, uh, one of the centers of Roman power. It was said that there was a um, legion of Roman soldiers, 6,000 soldiers who were housed there in the Decapolis. So this is the other side that Jesus wanted to visit. And I assume that his disciples are thinking, is Jesus out of his mind that this is where he wants to go? But perhaps what we can see in this decision to go to the other side is that Jesus had no plans of excluding anyone from God's great mission to express his great love to people. So look with me, Mark 5, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 3. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat... Immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. So when they arrived, they did not find what Jesus might be, expect to find on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, which would be this large crowd that overwhelmed them. Instead, he arrives, and there's one man that's there. I think Matthew's account describes there might have been two. But one man, and we discover the man is deranged, he's tormented, he's tomb-dwelling, self-mutilating demoniac who the community had exiled because he was just so out of control. And the man's home is made in this unclean place of the dead. And unclean spirits have made their home inside of him. As one commentator put it, this description reveals that he is as storm-tossed by the demons as the disciples' boat had been. So the locals had tried to constrain this man. And they obviously, you know, because he was causing trouble. So they used chains and fetters, uh, to shackles to try to tie him down. But he's too powerful. He overwhelms the chains. I'm imagining that's part of the scene. Our broken chains maybe hanging off of him. They're scattered um, in this area where he uh, resided. And verse 4 says, no one, could, uh, no one was strong enough to subdue him. This comes from the Greek word demazo, which is generally used to describe the taming of a wild animal. So maybe a better translation is no one was able to tame him. Now, we don't tame humans, right? That's reserved for wild animals. But this man was acting in a way that they thought they needed to tame him. And so that's what they were doing. So they sent him out where he had to live among those whose sleep was not disturbed whenever he shouted out at night as he gashed himself with stones on his own body. If you consider the humanity of this situation, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Perhaps you've seen or encountered situations where the, the condition of the person is so overwhelming, it's just heartbreaking. Well, Jesus evidently saw this man 
uh, coming toward him who was disturbed. And he, he recognizes what's going on. So in verse 8, it says he commands, he says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So he already speaks to the demon that's residing within this man. Verse 6 says the possessed man runs toward Jesus, falls down before him, bows down, and it's a scene where all of a sudden the guy's got control. He's been out of control for so long, but now he's bowed down before Jesus. But he doesn't remain controlled. Verse 7 says, And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. So the demon probably recognized that his end game is that Jesus is going to cast him in to the lake of fire. So don't torture me as I know is the plan to happen. Don't do it yet. So they, evidently the demons recognized Jesus. His divinity permeated where maybe mankind couldn't see, but they knew what was going on. And in the first century, commentators said that when it came to this whole demon possession thing, that it was believed it was important to know the name of the demon. And in fact, the demon could try to manipulate by knowing the name of the person that's casting the demon out. I know, it sounds like, well, what, is, what, what is that, exactly does that mean? I'm not sure. But I think we see this playing out here in verse 9, where he says, and he was asking him, this is Jesus speaking to the man, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. So this is a real play on words here. Remember we said that, uh, there was a legion of Roman soldiers that resided in the Decapolis. A legion is about 4,000 to 6,000 Roman soldiers. So a reminder that the enemy army is always nearby and always able or willing to overcome. So I think what he's saying here is that there are many demons within me. Verse 10 through 13 says, And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Well, like me, you probably have the question, why did Jesus let him go into the pigs? You know, why would he have done that? Well, the bottom line is, we don't know. You know, why would he have done that? I don't know. But that's what he did. Some speculate. They think, well, perhaps he wanted people to see just how destructive this evil force was, just how powerful these demons were and what their end game was to destroy. Or maybe he didn't want them to wreak havoc on the man, but he knew they were going to wreak havoc so they could do it on these swine. Some, uh, one thing that's important to notice here, though, is that Jesus doesn't command them to do that, but he does allow it. So some label this as one of Jesus' two miracles of destruction. They say that when Jesus cursed the fig tree, that was a miracle of destruction. I think there's a different interpretation of that. They also say this is one because he kind of cursed these pigs. But I think we see here Jesus allowed it to happen. And that's evidence of the fact that Jesus is sovereign. They couldn't do what they wanted to. They had to ask permission of the Lord. They recognized he's in control. So they said, can we go do this? And Jesus allowed it to happen. Um, also, though, the original Jewish audience would not have been disturbed by the fact that these pigs died, right? They probably were saying, well, go Jesus. He got rid of the demons and he got rid of the pigs, you know? That's probably what they were thinking. In fact, I think that it would show that not only did Jesus cast the demons out, but he also destroyed what they considered to be unclean. Either way, 
we see that Jesus cared more for this single man than he did for this herd of pigs. And I know that's disturbing for some of you thinking, I just hate that part of the story. But don't get stuck there. Because what we really have to see is what does Jesus value? This man. This man who's disturbed, he wants to set him free. Well, the same thing cannot necessarily be said of the townspeople, the people that knew this man. The passage indicates that those who were the herders of the pigs, they probably didn't own the pigs. They were just the herders. So they ran back to tell the leaders of the town, probably to bring the owners of the swine back, to say, you're not going to believe what just happened. You know, so they come back to see what's, what's gone down. And they do not rejoice at the fact that this man who they knew had been tied down with chains and they couldn't control was now in his right mind. The scripture says he's cleaned up. He's wearing clothes. He's sitting there and they're thinking, oh man. But they don't rejoice at that. They get real focused on the fact of what's happened here. They couldn't control him with chains and shackles, but now he's free from all that. They didn't say, I know somebody else who's dealing with the same thing. Jesus, do you think you could set him free? They didn't say, well, if you can do that, what about my family member who's sick? Can you heal them? What about this person who's blind? Can you make them see? What about my mother who's about to die? Can you save their life? That's not how they react. Look at verse 17 at what they do. And they began to implore him to leave, to leave their region. They were more concerned with Jesus' power than they were the destruction this man had been experiencing and now had been set free from. I guess they thought that Jesus, this man from the other side of the sea, might turn that power on us. So the demons had asked to be able to go into the swine. Jesus said, okay, you can do that. These townspeople say, we want you to leave our town. Well, Jesus obliges. Now he has one more request to consider. Let's conclude the story, verse 18 through 20. It says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. The only one he said no to was the demon-possessed man who requested what every you know, disciple of Jesus might want to ask, every convert, can I go with you? Lord, I want to remain with you. But Jesus says no, but he gives him the commission to go do what he gives to every convert. He says, but you go and tell. Now, if you study the scriptures, you'll remember there were plenty of people who had been healed or experienced miracles. And he says, now keep quiet. Don't tell anybody. But he doesn't do that here. He says, go and let everybody know. Tell them what's happened. He is a missionary to the Gentiles. This man has been alienated in his own town. And now the man who dramatically changed the trajectory of his life is pushed off from shore, rowing away. He had to feel all alone. But what does he do? Exactly what Jesus told him to do. He told people in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And the account says everyone was amazed. When Jesus encountered the demon-possessed man, he was delivered and deployed. There is no one beyond God's ability to save, nor anyone unable to share what God has done. 
You know, we don't deal with the subject of demonization a lot in Western civilization or in uh, our tradition as a church. I think that most everyone listening would agree, though, that there is overwhelming demonic activity in our world. If you're like me, sometimes you watch the news and you say, there's no explanation except Satan's at work. Because that's incredible that they said that. That's incredible that they've done that. It's got to be demons at work. Now, I think uh, the problem is we're just not quite sure when and how to call it demonic activity. And I'm not really going to dive into that this morning, except to think that I say, I think we undersell what Satan and the forces of darkness are doing among us. We are too skeptical, or perhaps we're a little too nervous to credit what we see happening as demonic activity. In his introduction to the Screwtep Letters, C.S. Lewis writes that we can err in two ways regarding Satan and his demons. First, we either fail to take account of him or we give him too much credit or give him too much attention. Those are both extremes. And I would imagine that most of you are more apt to fall, uh, fail to take account of the work of Satan in and around your life. But the scriptures describe Satan and his demons as being active in our world and in our lives. It's undeniable. In 1 Peter 5.8, that close disciple to Jesus says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's happening. That's not that that happened. That is happening. Satan is a father of lies who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So when you're trying to analyze if something is demonic, that's one way to know. Is the, out, is the goal of this activity to steal, kill, and destroy? Well, it may be Satan at work here. As believers in Jesus, we are up against real supernatural powers. The scriptures say that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against dominions of darkness. And so the supernatural powers that oppose God, that destroy life, that deface it, demean it, defeat it, deform it. So evil comes from a demonic power that seizes human beings... And it's not something we can defeat on our own. It takes a greater supernatural power to vanquish it. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther's great hymn that we sing here very often reminds us, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. That's what we sing. So what are we supposed to do? James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So the reaction should be to submit to God. Obedience to his word. Surrender to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's our sanctuary from the work of the devil. And the main teaching for us to take note of here, though, is that Jesus can save each of us, even from the very bottom of the pit. No one is too far gone. I know we write people off. I think some of you have probably written yourselves off. But Jesus has the power to save you, no matter how far away you feel like you are from God. The people on the other side was seen, were seen as too far gone. The demoniac was seen as a lost cause. But this delivered demoniac goes and tells what God has done. Everybody says, there must be God. There must be Jesus. He must be real, because look what's happened. One of the more glorious things about Jesus is that he pursues us even when we're not interested in him. Those in this region, in this demoniac, they were not interested in God. They were not interested in the things of God. They did not send for Jesus to come to them. The man who had been delivered was not searching for freedom. In fact, he begged for the demons to be able to stay here. Don't make them go away. 
But the scriptures indicate that God allows himself to be found even by those who are not searching for him. It's an interesting passage in Isaiah 65. Verse 1 says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. Can you spot the parallels in this passage to the situation with the demoniac? I think this encounter with Jesus and the demoniac provides the proof that the gospel was to extend beyond the confines of Israel. God's goal all along was all the nations. Not only that, but we see evidence of God's grace here. His common grace, His prevenient grace. There's no one beyond God's ability to save. And Jesus demonstrates that here in this counter. If you found freedom in Jesus, then he is deploying you just like he deployed the demoniac who had been delivered. Perhaps it's difficult to identify with the demoniac. You think, I don't know. I've never been like this. I don't know what this is like. He was afflicted in a way most of us can't relate to. The way he re, uh, reacted to the demons in his body appears to be kind of the worst case of what we would describe as a mental illness. And we think, well, what is this? How, what do I do with this? Baker writes, we are definitely dealing here with a demoniac, not merely with a maniac. The picture Mark draws is filled with terror. Warren Wearsby points out that scripture does not explain the physiology or the psychology of being de- demonized, but it does make clear the overcoming power of the Savior. So what we have to be reminded here is every unsaved person is controlled to a certain extent by Satan. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Speaking to believers, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the uh, power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So every one of us is filled with sin, which is demonic in nature. You know, C.S. Lewis, before his conversion, he explained himself as this. He described himself as a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name, he says, was Legion. And in our sin, we are powerless on our own to find forgiveness. That's why Jesus came. Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If a person is lost in their sins, they're a target of Jesus' ministry. He met the demoniac on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee. He commanded the demons to leave him. Well, at Calvary, he did the same thing to your sin. He took all the evils of the world that reside within you upon his body. He absorbed the wrath of God that was destined for you because of your rebellion and died on the cross a gruesome death. He was buried, but in his resurrection, he gives the hope of eternal life. He offers to trade 
your sin for his righteousness. It's a free gift. It's called forgiveness. It's received by faith. So I think Jesus is asking today. He's saying, I will command the sin to flee from your life if you will only receive me and believe. The demoniac found freedom and couldn't help but share how Jesus had changed his life. But why are we so ashamed to tell what God's done in our lives? I mean, do we not feel like we've experienced the freedom the demoniac experienced? Or do we think that people will think we're strange and we talk about the best thing that ever happened to us? Well, I think, first of all, we think people are not interested. We think our story is not compelling enough for someone to listen to. We don't think God will use us to make a difference in somebody else's life. Or we don't think it really matters. We think, well, you know, God will sort things out in the end. I'm just going to, you know, do what makes me feel right, feel good. Well, the reason we're in this series is because there are people who you work with. There are people that you go to school with. There are people that shop at the same places as you. They live on the same street as you. Some of them reside in your own homes, and they are lost in sin. And if we apply the scriptures there, we would say they're dead in their sins. And the closest lifeline they have to Jesus is you. Jesus has done the miraculous in your life. He's rescued you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of the Son. He loves. He has done great things for you. And he has shown mercy to you. So what does he ask? Go home to your people and report to them. So as we dive into this series, I want to encourage you to do two things. It begins with prayer, asking God, God, who is it in my life? And then what I want you to do, those two things, is I want you to find opportunity to share with them what God's done in your life. And second, you invite them to church. You invite them to come here to be able to experience what God has done in your life and others. When Jesus encountered the demon-possessed man, he was delivered and deployed. Jesus calmed the storm in me. God, we thank you so much that you're still calming the storm of those that right now are obsessed with their own sin and lost. God, we thank you for forgiveness that you offer. I pray that those who have never responded will receive you today. Amen.